Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. I hope that this finds you well wherever you are. Um, I can almost be certain that wherever this finds you, there's probably some level of chaos and uncertainty around you. And I just want to remind you to take a breath, you know, and just take a moment to be here, to be present, to say thank you for supporting this podcast, for listening to this, for choosing yourself, for desiring to go within and explore your web and how you work and what you can do to be better and improve and just build your knowledge and your awareness and to be part of the vehicle that allows you that. I'm so grateful that the conversations I have are conversations that you find valuable. So my ask of you is that wherever you listen to this, if you could subscribe, subscribe and leave a five star and a written review. That'd be so, so supportive. I would really appreciate that. All right. Hot off the press. I got to tell you, Organifi has a new blend and it is chocolatey delicious. It's called Harmony and it is made for healthy hormones. It's designed for women. So it combines superfoods and adaptogens that have been used for centuries to support inner balance and bliss. With the ladies in mind, this blend is designed so you can feel your best and experience daily harmony. It's plant-based, it's gluten-free, it's vegan, it's dairy-free, it's soy-free. It's got cacao, maca, shatavari, stinging nettle, ginger, turmeric, coconut milk, chaste tree. I mean, it sounds delicious. It is delicious. I've tasted it. It's chocolatey delicious, so you can't go wrong. And it's designed for healthy hormones to use during your menstrual cycle. So there you go. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love to save 20% and get free shipping. And that is special to create the lovers on top of the 20%. So go to Organifi.com slash create the love. Today's guest, I met years ago before, right before I started writing, but was on the journey. And I won't get into the details of our meeting because it's in the podcast episode, but I've had, we, we knew each other uh, years ago and then have had the pleasure of watching each other's journeys. And I'm so grateful that she shared so openly her challenges, her realizations, her growth, her transformation, all of these things as she stepped fully into self-expression and really sharing her rock bottoms with us. The story is incredible and inspiring and I'm sure relatable to so many of you as it was to me. I'm sending you big love. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Vasavi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. It's kind of like a throwback because you and I met so many years ago, but we've had conversations on our lonesome, but never recorded one. No, we never did. No, and we we came to be friends over the love, shared love for Notorious B.I.G. Yes, we. I can't believe you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I remember it was at one of the uh, dance nights at the Awesomeness Fest. Oh, my God. You know, there was also a time, I forgot who else was in the circle, but I started... I was drinking at the time, you know, as I've shared before, I'm sober now, but I definitely busted out. I know every single word to Lottie Dottie by Snoop Dogg. That is we the, got a party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. Where? Right. Doesn't, don't right. get me started, Mark. I will, I know all the words <laughs> since sixth grade. Since yeah. sixth grade, yes. Depending on the age of the listener, that's either one of the best songs they've ever heard or what the fuck are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. That's Drake. No, that's not uh, Drake. Or T Swift. No, it's not. It's pre. It's pre. It's pioneering those. Um, Vasvi Kumar, right? I got <laughs> yes, the last name correct. Yes, you did. Very uh, rolled R. Like, you might as well be brown yourself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I just got an honorary certificate mm. for the R. Um, I'm so happy to have you on here. For those listening, she is both. Uh, Vasvi is a licensed therapist and a business strategist, which I have to say is one of my favorite combinations because for me, psychology and business and relating, it doesn't matter the container. Yeah. Um, 
you know, people in business can use some therapy, if you know what I mean. I do. I feel like a lot of times when you get into business, you know, a lot of people just want to be told how to do it. Here's a strategy. Here's how you go do it. And then you're confronted with your mental obstacles, right? And, and you're confronted with lack of confidence. You're confronted with issues that you didn't even know you had. And that's where I come in because it's, it doesn't matter how much strategy you have. If your mind is not right, your business is never going to work, period. Like you could yeah. push, you could, you could force it, but eventually you're going to burn out like I did, you know? So you, you got to get both. You got to get your mind right, Mark. So let's talk about that. So what what does life look like for you when the mind is not right? What is the catalyst? Because you grew up in a culture where there's pressure from a relational perspective, right? Absolutely. Tell us more about, because I think for a lot of people listening, they can relate to either religious slash cultural pressures relationally. And it doesn't matter where you're from, but I think it's heightened when we come from cultures that literally have thousands of years of uh, of programming in terms of what is right, what is not, what is the gender role, what is not, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in an Indian immigrant household. My parents came over here from the US. Um, they came over from India to the US in 1975. And they had my sister and I, I'm, I'm about to be 38, actually. And we were born and raised in New York. You know, I come from a very traditional Hindu Brahmin household. So what that means Oof. is, yeah, we are like the equivalent of Orthodox Jews. If I had to compare myself to any other kind of community, we're like the equivalent of very highly Orthodox Jews and, you know, three hour long prayers. We don't eat any meat at all. Arranged marriages. When girls have their periods, they don't go into the kitchen. They don't go into any room that has pictures of God because we're considered kind of unholy. So um, it was crazy. Yeah. Even uh. yeah, even to this day when I go to India uh, and I, I respect the culture, I don't necessarily have to abide by it in my own house. Like I cook for myself. So you better believe uh -huh. if I want to heat up some frozen pizza when I have my period, I'm going to be in the kitchen. I'm when not you, <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate that because I think about like. Is there ever a time where God isn't more present than in the shedding of the endometrium, in the process of death and life, in the, you know, like, yeah, it's especially the message that sends to a young woman that she's not worthy of being in the presence of God based on the conditions like that it's dirty, that it's, you know, all that, because it's not just in that container that that message is sent. Um, it's in many containers. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and also, you know, like my mom gave me a, she, she told me that when she was newly married, she was still living in India. And um, when she had her period, she was like basically put in another room and her meals were brought to her. By the way, let me just set some context up. My mom is a cardiologist. She's an educated woman. <laughs> and even as an educated woman, as a cardiologist in India, she's like in the other room with her, you know, bleeding and having her meals served to her. So um, wow. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Just, you know, women, no matter what their kind of education is, uh, how qualified they are, you know, in their, their periods, it's like you're, you're just considered, you're just kind of, you know, put to the side. And I understand now, though, you know, when I ask my dad and mom about it, it's like when women have their period culturally, you know, and just based on their moon cycles, they, you know, we do go through shedding. We are tired. We are more exhausted. So it's also because women need rest during that time. That's kind of how the, how I was raised to think it was. And now it's like, I'll determine whether or not I need rest. I don't need you to tell me whether I need to rest. So, you know, it, it was hard for me, Mark, growing up because we grew up in an all white town. Mm -hmm. My sister and I, my family and I were the only like maybe three Indian families growing up. And uh, I heard everything. I heard, you know, uh, does your father ride to work in a on a camel? Does he own 7-Elevens? which are convenience stores. Oh, your mom has a dot on her head, red dot special. Oh God. I mean, I mean, oh, and Simpsons and Apu and just kind of always. Yeah. The Simpsons didn't help that. Screw the Simpsons. I've never watched a single full episode of the Simpsons, dude. I was traumatized, but my point here is not to garner pity from your audience. My, my point here is to really kind of share, you know, when from a very young age, I was made to feel something was, I thought that something was wrong with me. And mm -hmm. I just felt, I remember strategizing on my way to school, what can I do if this person makes fun of me? What do I need to do to avoid the pain of being made fun of? How do I hide and how do I stay invisible so I don't have attention brought to me based on my accent, what I look like, or, you know, my mom, you know, or, or like my mom's name, my name. I mean, 
oh my God, every time we had a substitute teacher and they would get to the V's and I was like, oh shit, they're going to mess it up. And it was like, Masavi or how do I say this name? And it was just at a very young, young age, being so aware of how different you are that you don't fit in, it kind of just really set the tone for me, always either trying to hide from who I was or trying, you know, or like trying to fit in, right? So I'm either hiding from my true, I'm hiding from my true nature and trying to seek approval from other people. So, you know, damned if I do, damned if I don't, right? I can, I, I was too brown for the white people, too white for my, for my family, too Americanized for my family. Oh, wow. That's so interesting to be caught in a double mind like yeah. that. In the, just so I could understand through your lens, was there an adaptation that you were trying to make yourself whiter, like in the way you spoke? Because I've heard, you know, someone like Michelle Obama say that too, where she was like, there was like a way you spoke that was different, that so that there was a different perspective that you weren't put in this box. Um, and it, I definitely feel a lot of the kids at school would talk disrespectfully to their parents. And um, I tried to, I thought that, I should be allowed to be disrespectful to my parents and talk back to them. And I that go? would get a few ass whoopings here and there. I mean, you know, listen, I, uh, I'm fine now. Definitely got a few ass whoopings <laughs> in my day. But I, um, you know, I, my mom and dad, my mother especially did not tolerate me talking back to her. I tried talking back to her and because um, I saw my friends doing that. I, you know, and I, I thought that I had to not be too smart. If, if there was anything that I did, it was... You know, in the second grade, this will kind of paint a picture. In the second grade, there was a writing contest. It was called the Reflections Contest. And we're in second grade. So what is that? Eight years old, seven, eight years old. Yeah. The question of the year was, does the sky have a limit? Okay. This was the writing question. And I wrote, I wrote my answer to the essay in second grade. And I said, the sky only has a limit if you think it has a limit. And I, I want, mean, that's pretty philosophical. I, I, mean, I it, like that. Yeah. I yeah. Said it only has, it, I mean, that really go, has to say a lot about our thinking. And I won the contest. And they announced the first prize winner was Vasavi Kumar over the loudspeaker. And I remember how happy I was, but I remember everyone around me made fun of me because I won. And they're like, what does that answer even mean? Like, I just remember kind of not having everyone mm -hmm. celebrate with me. And so in that moment, I basically, I don't think I consciously knew that I was doing this, but I said to myself, okay, well, if I want to have friends and if I want to fit in and I want people to like me, I can't ever be too smart. Don't be too bright. Don't be too white. Don't be don't, too brown. Yeah. Don't be too smart. Don't. I mean, that's, it's like, just be average. Just don't be like, just don't like, just don't be, don't be too uh, much. Yeah. Don't be. So it's just like, who am I then? If I can't be too intense, I can't be too smart. I can't be too Indian. Then who the fuck am I? Excuse my language. Uh, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone listening to this yeah. is like, oh, don't apologize. I'm sure they're saying it in their car. Don't apologize. Mark's fine with that. He swears all the time. What I want your audience to know is this. I mean, you don't have to be Indian to relate to this, right? In your own life, think about what you can't be too pretty. You can't be too athletic. You know, uh, you can't outshine the other students on your in your class or on your team because you know, other people are insecure. So God forbid you outshine them. So don't play too well, just stay under the radar. Or if you have parents who, you know, really have these um, regrets in their life and they've expressed it to you, then you may internalize that as a child and be like, well, I don't want to surpass my dad, yeah. you know, because he has that chip on his shoulder. I mean, it shows up in so many ways, but for me, it was definitely, now I see it as someone who has totally reclaimed her power, reclaimed her power is like, I always felt like, don't want to show that I'm that smart because like, what if, you know, what if people think I'm a know-it-all? If I, if I, if I share what I know, they're going to think I'm a know-it-all. And that's something that I've always tried not to be. But as a result, what I ended up was just kind of staying under the radar and not being able to have the, the, the impact that I really wanted to have, you know? But now, now geez. it's like, no, YOLO, man, you, I mean, I got one life. <laughs> that's it. Like, I, I'm very grateful for everything that I've gone through because now I, I even think I've manifested. I don't really like that word because it just feels very woo-woo. But the fact is, I think when you truly step into your power, great things will happen. I think even a byproduct of that is us having this conversation. Like, Mark, I know you've busted your ass to create the platform that you have and how many people listen to you and uh, hear your words on a, on a daily basis. So even us having this conversation on your podcast is a byproduct of me reclaiming my power. Do you get what I'm saying? 
Yeah. I mean, to think the first time we ever met was before I started this. It was really yeah. on the cusp of starting and Create the Love on Instagram and going back and doing positive psychology. It was right before all that. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's to see where we both are now in just such different places is um, a beautiful testament to that change. If you change, it's working, <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah. I think that uh, we get presented with the same pattern so that we can rise into our power, that we can find our voice. And, you know, certainly your journey has and continues uh, to be one that I think is really inspiring. That's why I wanted to have you on here because, you know, I think we often take people and put them on pedestals, not realizing that that doesn't give them any permission to be human. And we do this from a ap academic titling perspective where we don't allow people to be humanized because of their credentials and that we do it with people we celebritize. And then we don't give space for them to be human, which means we don't give space for ourselves to be human. And so I think when we hear people's stories where they go through what you've been through and identify the ways in which you hid your light in order to um, stay safe, really, at the end of the day, not get too hurt, stay safe, not, but then how that shows up in adult life, you know, and so how does that take you because that's school and that's your experience and the sky's only a limit if you believe it. I love that you were philosophical from <laughs> seven years old, probably much younger. So what are the the greatest things you've learned in the last bit, because, you know, I, I know you personally, so I know that you've hit some, some bottoms. I will tell you how this showed up. I want, I want everyone listening to know that, you know, when you have these limiting beliefs and when you, when you limit yourself and your thinking, it shows up in every area of your life. I'm going to talk about relationships for a second, because obviously this is your focus, but, and I think it's very relevant to people listening for me, me feeling like I never wanted to shine too bright um, really showed up in the men that I picked. Always. I um, Do you know this? So I'm, I'm officially single now. So I just, for after 15 years of always being in a relationship, married, divorced, and then two other relationships, um, I, I've never met a man when I've actually felt good about myself mm. and vibrationally high. Every man that I've met. So my ex-husband, I met him when I was 22, when I was starting to develop what became a pretty big cocaine problem. At the, <laughs> pretty big. It just, it was love a, how you started with yeah, that. Pretty, but, uh, when um, I was starting to develop a moderately <laughs> large size cocaine but, issue. But I met him when I was just starting. Like, you know, I, I, I was in college. I was 22 and I was, I was sleeping around a lot, you know, and I met my husband, this beautiful, you know, Indian Prince Charming, Aladdin. And I was a Jasmine and we, <laughs> I was the damsel. If there's one thing that I've always been really good at is playing the damsel, the damsel in distress. To give us a role, to give the oh. men in your life a job oh, yeah. to be needed, to protect yeah. them from yeah. uh, not you standing in your own power. Yeah, we can do this no matter the gender combination, but especially. Yeah. And, you know, I, lear I learned this from my father. Uh, I will say, you know, everything stems from childhood. What we see, we repeat. My, my mom I would like, I think she could get better at her, you know, managing her emotions. And I'll just say, say that because this is, I'm not trying to throw my mom under the bus, but she it is. She probably doesn't listen to my podcast. I, I so doubt she does. Should be safe. Yeah. But I, I remember, you know, my mom was pretty emotionally volatile growing up. Um, never knew when the other shoe was going to drop. I grew up in that kind of household. And I remember asking my dad at a very young age, why do you stay with her? And my dad said, well, she needs me. She needs me. So and I love her Ooh, and I know, yeah. I, I know she's in pain and she needs me. So whether I knew it or not at the time, what I had inevitably done was always played the someone that needed someone. I, mm -hmm. I, I was always just take care of me. I'm in pain. So, so I you thought watch your mom's pattern that keeps yeah. your dad. And then huh. that's how you keep a man around. Stay in pain, be in pain. You know what I mean? Have issues, be the damsel, because if I, get my shit together, then you're not going to need me anymore. You're not going to want me because once I can step into my own power, then there's no role for you, no role for the man. So, mm -hmm. you know, we just feed into each other, right? You have yeah. a role. I have a role. Unfortunately, that role that I played really led me to some multiple rock bottoms. So got married and divorced to this guy. We're still civil with each other. He's got, he's remarried. I'm truly happy for him. Uh, congratulated. How long were you married? We were married. We were together for a total of 10, married for four. 
How uh, did the cocaine persist throughout? So I will tell you this. When I married him, I completely stopped using cocaine. It was like, oh, uh, wow. yeah, because that's what happened. So I had been using cocaine. Like in He my, saved you. He saved me. He saved me. From, <laughs> I even said this in, a, in the wedding video that the videographer took when he said, tell me a few words about your husband. And I said, he saved me from myself. I actually, oh, yeah, wow. I actually said that in the wedding video, you know, behind the scenes of the reception, I said, he saved me from myself. So that just kind of gives you a glimpse. What the declaration of love on a video, you know? And then now you think like that language is, it's no. interesting because to someone listening, they might be like, whoa, beautiful. And I think like, no. yes. And the deeper layer of that, we're inspired to save ourselves through yes. reminders of love. So when when him and I got together, we moved to Kansas City. I stopped using cocaine because I was building my coaching business, and I was I had just graduated from you know Columbia, getting my master's in social work. I think I'd met you two years later. I just you know, and so I wasn't using cocaine or anything. Uh, but we definitely like just were living on parallel paths. We were not growing together at all. Um, typical Indian guy. I, I'm going to say typical. I could say that because he's my people. You know what I mean? Like he's just very like looking for a mommy. If I said that, I'd be in trouble. Yeah, you would be. You no, can say that. I can say that. But you know, I, he's a great guy, but we were just young and in love and thought yeah. the next step was to get married. Like it really was just another box to check off. You know, I, I know for me, it was like, he's picked me. He's picked me. And now I'm like, damn, I should be picking myself. Right. And now I, had I known what I know now, I would have been like, this is not going to work for X, Y, Z amount of reasons. But for me, it was like, he picked me, right? Mm. And I remember a month before the wedding, I said to my father, I don't think we should be getting married. And my father said to me, but you have bipolar disorder. Who else is going to marry you? Wow. Yeah, it just wow. gets it gets peeled back, all these layers. In your experience, your bipolar disorder, was that part of be the damsel in distress? Was that part of like the construction? Well, one, when we're disempowering ourselves, it obviously affects our mental health when we're not speaking our voice, when we're doing what we're supposed to do and thereby abandoning a separate path that would be, let's say, self-choosing, mm -hmm. um, self-expressed, authentic, which we only uncover as we're separating more and more from ourselves and we start to get sick and our mind starts to get stressed and the truth is starting to live over to our left and we're living in this alternate world. So I'm curious in your experience of your bipolar disorder, was it a result of that? Was it or a culmination of a bunch of things? I was diagnosed when I was 20 years old. I had, um, I was in college for the first two years at Boston university transferred home, um, because I had all the classic signs of mania. So I was mm -hmm. just starting to use more drugs, hypersexual, grandiose in my thinking, blah, blah, blah. I mean, every I'm psychology textbook case. Avoidance. I mean, all of it. all ways of avoiding pain, really. Ultimately. Yes. And I remember transferring back home to Long Island, New York, going to one of the top psychiatrists with my mother. The psychiatrist diagnosed me as bipolar. And the first thing my mother said to me was, don't tell anybody about this diagnosis. Oh, first thing. And then I did an eight ball that night. And then I, I, I did an eight ball of cocaine that night. Was it eight ball? I'm very naive when it comes to cocaine. There's a good it's reason a lot, I never Mark. did it. I it's get addicted to gummy bears. If yeah. I did cocaine, I wouldn't even have a podcast. No. I'd, be, I'd be at the club still. I'd be the guy who's yeah. too old for the club. Yeah. You know, that guy who's doing eight balls. No, is it no. eight ball? Like, is that, wait, is that an ounce? I, dude, I, I, I think I've erased uh, amounts, but let's just say it's like, it's, it's enough. It's more than one. It's means. like, it's, it's like, it's like baller. That it is, it is baller. I don't want to feel a thing for days and I want to be out like a light. And I just remember, you know, even though that diagnosis was, was given to me, I felt relief in that moment when I got that diagnosis because it kind of made me feel like, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I have a label now. I have a reason for why mm, I'm behaving this The identity, this way. the label part, it's not yeah. my fault yep. kind of thing. Yep. Hmm. That's fascinating. So then how does that, so as you go through your divorce 10 years later, yeah. and then how does the bipolar continue and merge to, because 10 years later, so you're now in your early 30s yep. at this point in the story, take us Take us back on the adventure. So the adventure, I know, sorry. So um, I, I got divorced when I was 32, still on medication. Uh, I, I was on medication from the time that I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed when I was 20. 
And like I said, so at that point, still on medication, got divorced when I was 32. I left. Was that medication helpful for you? I have so many. Just in hindsight. Yeah. I'm just curious because a lot of people don't like hearing answers to this, but I actually think it's highly, you know, informative for people just to understand what they might be experiencing in in their medications. I'm going to tell you right now, I think getting on medication initially was the best thing that I did. Awesome. Because I needed something to take the edge off. Yeah. And while I did feel, yes, lethargic, I gained 45, I was 170 something pounds, which is just doesn't fit my frame at that. You know, yeah. like I've always been a 135 kind of girl. And here I was 20 years old, like 175 of excess weight and very lethargic and um, zombie like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just a cocktail of drugs, right? They had me on Depakote, Risperdal, Topamax. I mean, Lamictal. Wow, all. you were on all the ones. I was on all the ones. Never never studied together, by the way, you know? Yeah. It's like, we'll just use all these to treat each other's side effects, et cetera. But I, but I want to say for anyone out there listening who's been recently diagnosed is that, you know, use this as a time to really start to understand your mind. If The, the greatest gift that I think I was given by ha- by being given a diagnosis was that I set out on truly understanding my mind. Because when you're told you have a mental illness, the way that I registered that was, well, if my mind is ill, then what do I need to do to get healthy in my mind? So yeah. it wasn't for me, it wasn't just taking medication. It took me about a year to then really get my ass in gear and be like, I need to eat right. I need to work out. I yeah. need to stop consuming, you know, violent media or just stuff that I don't want to watch. So me getting this illness diagnosis, mentally ill diagnosis set me on a path of if I'm going to be living with this mind for the rest of my life, I better develop a healthy relationship with this mind. What do what control do I have to really cultivate a relationship with this, you know, control, you know, this, this driving force? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything starts in your mind. So how do I develop a relationship with my mind so I don't fall off the wagon? So I don't, you know, feel crazy all the time. So you're in. So you get to this place where you're in your early 30s. You're getting you get divorced. And then. So I got divorced when I was 32. And I remember saying to my mother, I want to get divorced because I've never actually been alone. And I want to Mm. be alone. And I want to develop a relationship with myself. I had all the right intentions, by the way. But then lo and behold, as the universe usually kind of gives us what we need, uh, or, (laughs) or just kind of dangles a carrot, I met a guy um, eight years younger than me. And uh, wait, how long were you separated slash divorced? So (laughs) For how many minutes? <laughs> so uh, got divorced. Uh, you know, all the paperwork, everything was final November 11th. It was, I would actually just gone to um, Awesomeness Fest. I think I think that that was the one where I met you maybe. But um, Playa del Carmen, that's the one. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. November of 20, so maybe it wasn't that one, but it was like November of 2014. And then I met this guy like right before Thanksgiving. So like two weeks after I got divorced, met this guy. <laughs> oh, the universe is so great. Eight hey, years- we have a we have either a test or a placeholder. Yeah, placeholder. Um, the funniest thing is, Mark, and I don't know if this is relevant information. I think it is. I sure. decided to, you know, after I got divorced, I said, I'm going to join a group therapy circle. Not, I wasn't running it. I was in it for myself. It was like on emotions and emotional regulation and boundaries and I met a guy in group therapy. Who oh, in group too. This is too good. This I, is like a couple I, people in AA falling in love in their first year. They're 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 13th step in it. 13th step in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I met a guy who had just come out of rehab. Oh, know? that's perfect. <laughs> so in the group therapy circle, eight years younger, and we kind of hit it off and thought he was cute. And we just we just started hanging out and I moved him into my apartment three months later. And, uh, wow. it, I should have known this. You talk a lot about this on your page, but the idea of ghosting, I had never been ghosted in my life. I had never had a guy ghost me. And you have to remember up until that point I was with my ex-husband and he never treated me like he never treated me poorly. You know, we just, mm-hmm. and I remember the first 10 days of me meeting this new guy within like four or five days, I just hadn't heard from him. And I'm like, what's going on? I didn't even know this concept of ghosting, but I remember how it made me feel That was a red flag that I ignored. So everyone listening, don't ignore your red flags. If it feels (laughs) off, it is. And I'm like, why do I feel so crazy? And then I kept calling him and I kept texting him. And I'm like, where are you? I'm worried about you. Just being my 
kind, loving self, I thought, and hadn't heard from him. That was a red flag. Uh, did you move him in after that? Yeah, I did. Oh, oh. Yeah. So talk about talk about really ignoring my red flags. Uh, many, many red flags that I don't feel like getting into, but I think a, a lot <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, you don't need to. Uh, he really did, though, bring up a lot of those wounds of, you know how I said, I can't be too smart for anyone. I can't be too bright. And um, I remember... I remember him mentioning kind of something like, oh, well, you know, you're really lucky you're doing well in your business because, you know, you've had resources handed to you your whole life. Oh. Just kind of like feeling – and I, I remember feeling like guilty. A little subtle abuse. Yeah. I, and I didn't even know. And I, and I think that really goes to show – this is the bigger picture here is that I allowed myself to be treated that way. I allowed – people to diminish me because I diminished me. I was just getting a mirror back to what I was already doing to myself. But at the time I didn't realize that I I felt guilty. And so I moved him in because he said to me, my mom is kicking me out of my house. I need a place to say, why can't you just let me move in? I mean, you have a whole, and I felt guilty and I, and I, and I allowed him to move in. He was a good, I mean, he was just fresh out of rehab. So he's, he was good. So I'm curious from the role perspective of like, you took on damsel in distress. Is he now your damsel in distress? Have you role pivoted? That is so amazing that you said that because I was initially his damsel. I was like this newly divorced woman and just trying to navigate. I mean, he heard everything that was going on because we were in group therapy and um, that role was turned because then he, I then became the caretaker. I became the sugar mama. And um, then he's, you know, was suggesting that we should party together because I was making good money in my business. So I also became a supplier of drugs. Wait, so this post rehab (laughs) guy, not sober. Post rehab guy, maybe a month sober, me freshly divorced. Oh, that's a recipe for an eight ball. That's a re- oh, yeah. eight, eight, maybe a couple eight balls, a couple of eight balls, a sixteen ball. Do they call the, the, it that? Probably not. I, I don't. I don't. Do I they try. call it a nutsack? <laughs> no, they don't do that. No hey, nuts, let's get no a nutsack. Nuts, I, no yeah, nuts. I don't think people are ordering those. <laughs> well, people are ordering those, but you know what I mean. Not as a cocaine combination. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so you and and this guy start. You become his drug supplier too. It's, it's, I, when I talk about it, it's like I'm talking about somebody else, right? So, Thank you so much for sharing it. I think for anyone listening, this is, we learn through the stories of other people and it is through the courageous act of sharing that we get honored with your story and your vulnerability and your courage and your transformation. So we're all like, okay, so we're fucking partying. We're dating a guy who's in rehab. He moved out of his mama's house into, into our mommy's house. house. I, I'm yeah. the next mommy. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here I am, you know, f- financially independent for the first time in my life. Cause in the Indian culture, we go from our dad's house to our husband's house and I'm financially independent. So I'm working five jobs. I'm doing therapy. I'm doing substitute teaching. I'm driving for Uber and Lyft and I'm a line cook at a vegan restaurant. Cause I also, Gee, you're crushing it. I'm crushing so, it. Hold on this. As you're doing all of this, cause this is, this is amazing. You're holding the world up and I'm holding it down. I'm holding it up and I'm holding shit <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, I'm curious from a cultural perspective at this point, you're now, you've done the marriage and divorce thing. So you divorce despite I'm guessing that your culture doesn't necessarily approve of divorce. Are you then considered or like, um, do you feel discarded by your culture at that point? Or what is the experience of the cultural narrative there or the religious narrative? I had very little communication and support from my parents. And I don't ever blame them or make them feel bad about it. Like the culture, I I don't really care about the Indian culture as a whole, but you know, my parents who always stood by my side, as long as I did the right thing. And for everyone Mm -hmm. listening, I'm saying this in quotes, did the right thing. When I got divorced, my mother said, well, you're on your own. Don't expect a dime from us to help you. Abandonment in your most delicate time. In the most delicate time. And I, I want everyone to hear that I'm not blaming my parents, but I always believe if they hadn't left me, I would not have put all my eggs, emotional eggs in this guy's basket. And I've said that to my mom in therapy. I said, you left me like you left mm-hmm. me. And I felt all alone because I'm living in Austin. You're on the East Coast. I'm not married to my husband anymore. And I felt really alone. And she won't ever really admit it to this day, but it's okay. I've made peace with it. It's It's been, it's done and over with, but definitely um, took on the role of having to take care of myself. And now 
taking in this guy and play. I, I felt needed, Mark. I really mm-hmm. felt needed. And that's really, that's when I really was even introduced to Melody Beattie's work, Codependent oh, No shit. More. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I remember reading, you know, Pia Melody. Anon, oh, Codependent my, No More. Coda, I mean, well, yeah, I didn't even shit. know what, I didn't even know what it meant. When I, when I, when I went to a Coda meeting or when I read Codependent No More, I was like, this is me. And then I would say it to the guy I was dating. I'm like, I think I'm codependent. He's like, that's all bullshit. Now looking back, of course he didn't want me to have awareness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course he didn't that want me to. That would mean he's codependent too. Exactly. You can't, didn't... one person in a relationship can't be codependent. No. Both are, well, in a in a functioning relationship. Yeah. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the beauty of the awareness of waking up within one and being like, wait, <laughs> is this relationship my life? Oh, it is. Wait, are their feelings my feelings? Yes. Do they need me at the cost of themselves? Yes. Where do they end and where do I begin? Right. There was that enmeshment, which I had obviously experienced from a very young age with even my, my own, my mother and my father. Culturally, there's enmeshment in that. Let me say something about the Indian culture. And I'm part of this like very large Facebook group and it's great. And I talked to a lot of the girls there. There is so much, I want to live my life this way. But what about my parents? Mm. And I feel that on such a deep level, but I thank God every day that I don't feel that kind of internal pressure anymore to live my life according to society and cultural and religious standards. It's like I refuse to live my life according to what other people think or expect of me. I refuse to do that because I did that so much in this very toxic relationship that we're talking about that I I lost myself completely. And so now it's like, no way. Like I am never, I am never going to compromise myself and my needs and my wants and my desires for somebody else and go against my values. Like Hell yeah. sometimes that's all. Hell yeah. <laughs> that inner compass, you know, I think at the, yeah. I'm curious in the whole time that you were sort of operating um, underneath, you know, that, that you're in these patterns, you get divorced, then you enter this toxic relationship in that experience, underneath it all, are you, is there an inner knowing feeling that's like, I'm a fucking badass and I need to get my voice. Like I could fuck shit up and own my life, but I'm going to pretend that I need this addict guy. I'm going to pretend like, is that, is there a feeling that makes that voice? That is one of the best questions and distinctions I think I've heard in a while. Let me, let me describe it to you. So I need everyone to hear that while I was dating this guy, I was making like eight to 10,000 a month in my one-on-one coaching business. And then I started developing this cocaine addiction, right? One day a week became two to three to four to five days a week. I needed six days off because my nose hurt. You know, I like I needed two days off because my nose was hurting, right? Damn. So yeah, Damn. I mean, it, it was pretty bad. I mean, it, it, it was bad. But <laughs> to answer your question, it was like, it was a constant battle, this duality within me, the, the voice of knowing that was like, you're way better than this guy. Multiple times he cheated on me, lied to me about everything, all sorts of stuff. Never left him because I thought it was my job to make it work. Mm-hmm. But I always felt like I am so much more than this. God has bigger plans for me. This is not, but I, I was so stuck and I was so psychologically dependent on him needing me mm. that I didn't know how to leave. In fact, if you want to know what hell feels like, this is what it looks like. It's like waking up next to someone every day, looking at them and asking yourself, what the fuck am I doing with this person? I don't want to be in this anymore, but I don't know how to get out of it. Mm. That's, that's hell. That was my hell. And put on top of that uh, progressive addiction, right? My cocaine addiction is getting worse. I'm, I'm, I'm living a double life, Mark. You know, doing interviews such as this, because I was on a lot of bigger podcasts back in the day, telling people to live their best lives and then, and then snorting cocaine afterwards, leading a double life. So constantly living in duality. I'm in a relationship that I know I shouldn't be in. I have non-existent self-care habits. I'm telling everyone to live a great life, but behind closed doors, I treat myself like shit. So I, mm. it was the ultimate hell for me. Because if I, if I look at what bipolar disorder is now, now living medication-free and feeling all my feelings and not judging them. Like I'm intense and passionate right now. And I used to judge that part of me. I used Mm. to judge the part of me that was intense because I was told that that was too much. But I will say when I look at bipolar disorder and the greatest gift that it's given me is like, yeah, boss, you are living a dual life and you need to find oneness within yourself. 
And, you know, when you're told enough times you're crazy, you're, you're manic and you're depressed and you're this and you're, you're this, you're this, you're this. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You will live it. You will be it. And I had to change the narrative. But it took a, a, a good, well, it's taken 37 years, but it's definitely taken a, a solid four years, I would say. And especially in this past one year where I finally hit my one-year sobriety mark. I'm a, a year and- Congratulations. Thank you. Almost That's one year and two amazing. months over. And um, I had to give myself the time, energy, and effort that I deserved and, and, and that I needed so I could really start helping the world, right? I really always knew I am here, God's work. God has a plan for me. I am here to be of service, but I never, I didn't, I had a limited capacity for what I could give other people because my capacity to love myself and be with myself was so limited. Well, especially when we burn so much energy pretending to be someone we're not and wear masks. And so innately the space between who we truly are and who we're being when there's a gap, that gap must be numbed by things like cocaine, by things like alcohol, by things like our phone, you know, anything that pulls us away from presence and being in the feeling of misalignment and being out of integrity, not realizing that that's the way home. The pain that you're going to face is the transformative energy, you know, and it's there's many people living secret lives. I just find that that's exhausting. I'd rather be like, listen, sometimes I eat gummy bears. Sometimes I don't. And when someone said to me once, like, how do you stay positive all the time? I'm like, I don't. That's the whole point. The whole point is I'm a fucking human. I'm not out here to be like optimism. Oh, just do this. And I'm like, sometimes fucking life's hard. Sometimes being a human sucks. And, And still that like pull to your purpose derives, um, like for me, what it was, was that I saw that a coach said to me once, every time you don't follow through on your passions and your purpose, you miss helping someone who needs what you have. And what you have, you were given, you didn't just cultivate through your own learning. It's being channeled through you. You're the conduit, not the source. And when you're, when you don't act as the conduit, you your fear is someone else's pain. And I was like, fuck, shit. Now I got to like fully step more into alignment, yeah. fully step more into self-expression. I'm afraid to post on Instagram. Like, get the fuck out of here. That's our fears. It's just like, you know, you said um, waking up every day in that experience, wondering what the fuck and being like, I want to leave. I just don't know how. Um, when we've never watched someone leave, we don't know how. When we are shamed for leaving or our relationship status is our self-worth or we lose our family because we left something and claimed ourselves. It's crazy when the claiming of oneself is actually the ultimate source of wounding in their family system. That to me is like, what a paradox that is. Like, holy shit, the last time I fully chose me, I lost you. I lost the people who are supposed to love me unconditionally. Fuck that. That pisses me off. Like, I'm I, pissed I, just thinking about it. I'm sweating for you right now. Like, I... Like, <laughs> well, this is your life too, right? We're, we're talking about what you've been through, you know? My grandma did not go to my mother's wedding to my father because my father was divorced before he met my mom. And so my grandmother, who's Irish Catholic... You're probably listening to this, Grandma, from from the grave. Uh, listen good. Is She said she was taught through Catholicism that a divorced man is not a good man. And then met my father and loved him. And, you know, it's like you missed one of the most important days for your daughter because your God taught you that gods don't teach that. That's no. not God. That's, that's control. That's dogma. That's human shame-based control behavior. It's dirty. It's disgusting. And it's a lot of reasons people do eight balls. It's a lot of reason why people do eight balls. It's a lot of reason why people stay stuck in relationships because they feel bad getting out of relationships. You know, I got to say, my mother and father are still together, like a lot of old school, you know, Indian, Indian couples. And they're not happy, though. I don't actually think they're happy. Do you know what I mean? They're just together. And now what I love, I, I got to say, my, my mom's a bad bitch. And I mean that in a very in a very positive way, <laughs> because I'm single now. And she has yet to ask me. And I know so many Indian mothers that would. She never asked me, are you going to get remarried? When are you going to get in a relationship? She goes, I want you to make as much money as you can. I want you to be as successful as well, you she can. She knows you're fire now. She said she, something like that to you. She's going to get Yeah. She's going to get it. 
Yeah, she knows. And and she said, you don't need to be with anybody right now. And I'm not I'm not looking for it. I'm not looking to be with anybody right now. Like I said, I'm single. I, I, I want to go back to um, I finally got out of that relationship because and I think it was completely like subconsciously planned on my part. My addiction got so bad that I had to go to rehab. I had to go to rehab. My, my family flew in from Philly. Did, did you have an intervention? I actually, I, I, I had a Godvention. I basically at five o'clock in the morning was high as hell. And I just remember being like, I need help. And I texted my sister and I was like, come here. And I was like, I was really high. And um, she came two days later and her and my aunt came, my favorite aunt in the world. They uh-huh. scooped me up. That's and, beautiful. Yeah. And they brought me back to rehab. And I said, I said, my sister, what about my BMW? What about my car? What, you know, and I was like, I'm like, what about my apartment? What about my car? My sister's like, if you were dying right now of a heart attack, would you really be thinking about your apartment and your car? And I was like, no, she goes, we will take care of all that. She goes, you just need to get help. And I remember my ex, my ex, you know, who, who was, I was with him at the time is like, you're leaving to go to rehab. And I was like, yeah. And my sister was like, you you are not a part of this family. You're, we are not having this conversation with you. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I actually did not want to go to rehab because I was so worried about what would happen to him if I went to rehab. That is the height of self abandonment. That's how much yeah. that. Yeah, it was like I can I, I can be fine. I'll get sober here in Austin. But my family was like, nope, couldn't say no to them because they had come. I knew I needed help. Things had gotten really bad, Mark. It, it gotten really bad, and so I, I I went to rehab and I got sober and. um I made the mistake that a lot of people do when they get healthy is that they want to go back to the sick person and they say, I'm healthy now. Let me bring you back on this ride with me. Oh, let me, let me heal you. Let me heal you because I'm, I'm, I'm a healer now, right? I'm healed. I can heal you. So I, I got sober, came back to Austin, got back in a relationship with him. He broke up with shit. Yeah. You don't know that you you don't know about this life, Mark. So I got sober, (laughs) came back to Austin, lived in sober living, did everything the right way, lived in sober living. I had seven. Was he sober? Nope. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Got back together with him. He would go with me to AA meetings, but I knew he didn't give it. He didn't care. He was just doing it because he knew that I was always going to provide financially for him. Money was never something that I uh, didn't have. And, um, Shortly after, you know, I hit my seven month sobriety mark and he broke up with me because he was like, you're just not fun anymore. And um, because I was sober. So I guess, you know, it wasn't fun anymore. And I relapsed two weeks later because the, the, I as much as I now re- I, I realized what it, I had done was that I got healthy and I still placed him above myself and I still placed him above my higher power. I was make I, I no longer had drugs, you know, be the central focus of my life, but he was still the central fo- focus of my life. So when he broke up with me, I completely unraveled and I relapsed and I never thought mm-hmm. that I was going to relapse. So such a blessing, you know, because you think of like, uh, people become our drug, you know, you get sober and then the person becomes your drug and then it's still avoidance of self that, uh, focus on them, focus on their issues, their work, their lack of sobriety. I'm now the guiding light, you know, and, and that self uh, pedestaling too is also dangerous because it's not uh, grounded, right? Because when we think like I've done the work, I'm the I'm one. good now. Yeah. Well, guess what? The universe is going to give you a nice cosmic two by four to the head to remind you that you're always the student. Um, and you know, to, to relapse two weeks later and then find the real bottom. Real, the real bottom. And it, 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 there's a little twist. There's always a twist with my story. What's the twist? What's the twist? I thought that was the twist. She- no, no, no. It, it, it's, it's pretty juicy. Maybe not. I, I mean, I think it is. So I relapsed and I said, okay, it's just a slip, right? It's just a slip. I used once, May 31st, uh, May 31st, 2018. That was my relapse day. I'll never forget it. It was one of the saddest days of my life because I never thought I would go back there again. And I said, okay, I, I just did it once. I just did it once. Well, that's not the way drugs work. If you, if addiction is a disease of the mind and if, and if, mm-hmm. if like, that's not how it works. You do it once and you're in pain and that, and you're not actually addressing that pain. You're going to keep going back to the thing to alleviate yeah, that pain. Yeah. Yeah. You, you ask, what does the drug give you that you don't cultivate from within? Which is just peace, which is just yeah. focus on myself, which is just a set up, you know, co- I always use cocaine as a way to calm me down. It was like a, it just really calmed down my emotions to the point of I didn't have to feel them anymore. You know, it numbed me and just calmed me down in a, in a very sick kind of way. And 
what became a May 31st slip ended up becoming three days a week again, four days a week. I remember 4th of July weekend, I used every single day that week. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to turn my life around. I never told my parents. I got a job, Mark, in September of 2018 as the co-host of a morning show here in Austin, Texas. And I said, this is it. This is going to save me. This job is going to save me. I love celebrity television. life is the answer. Celebrity. To yes. That's I'm going to, I'm going to be on for zero celebrity. I'm, I'm going to be on TV. I can't use cocaine anymore if I'm on TV and I'm going to, so I stopped using cocaine. I got this job as a morning show host, co-host. Nice. But I stopped using cocaine, but I started binge drinking every Friday, Saturday. So everyone listening, you can't swap one addiction for another. That's what <laughs> yeah. I did. It's whack-a-mole. But, it's just whack-a-mole. Still seeking external things to make me feel better. If, if, if it's not the guy, it's the job. It's the glamorous job. If it's not the job, it's the money. If it's not the money, it's the followers. None of it, none of it has, has ever made me feel good about myself or really helped me feel the way that I feel now. And so fast forward, I went back to rehab in March, March 27th of 2019. I went back to rehab. March 26th is my sober date. March 27th, I checked myself back into rehab. And here I am today. And this past year has been the hardest, most painful year of my life because I've had to be confronted with feelings of uselessness, feelings of worthlessness, feeling like a loser, feeling like nobody loves me, feeling like if I'm not helping other people, then I'm useless, feeling like it's too late, feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm unlovable, all, all, all the things, every single unkind thing I could possibly say to myself I had to deal with. And I didn't have drugs to deal with it. I didn't have alcohol to deal with it. I didn't have a man to deal with it. I just sat my ass at home and quarantined my ass for one year. That's why right now this is like totally easy for like, me. You got to quarantine. You're like, I, continue I, quarantine. I continued quarantine. I literally just said to myself, I'm going to sit with myself and deal with my feelings. I'm going to, I'm going to do recovery the right way for me. And what that meant wow. was, is that I really just take the time with myself and create those habits and those morning routines and all the things that I know I should have been doing to sustain to sustain and to grow the capacity that I needed to grow in order to be able to serve. You can't help anyone unless you help yourself. You can't save anyone unless you save yourself. You can't save anyone, period. Let me just say that. But, <laughs> but, you, but you're no good to anyone if you are slowly dying on the inside. And I was slowly dying on the inside. Yeah, you certainly don't know the path till you walk it. You know, no. uh, at least your path or a path that could look similar for someone else. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned that you're no longer on medication. How, what was that like? How did you do that? What is that? Because for someone listening, they, you know, it's very dangerous to say, oh, just stop your medication, quit that. It's like, how did you get from the place you were in to the place you are now? Um, so yeah, full full disclaimer, I just want everyone to know, do not listen to this uh, interview and go get off your medication. Yeah, because we don't want that. I just, I will say that when I got sober, so that was in March 26th. I got off medication November 27th of 2019. So that's how many months sober. So that's April, May, June, July, August, September, eight months sober. I was eight months sober and I got off medication. So like I what said, drove that? Yeah. I was in India. I went to India um, this past November. I went to Rishikesh, which is one of our holy cities in India. And I went for yoga teacher training because... I, I love yoga and I just, I needed to, I needed to get the fuck away. Like I just needed to go yeah. back to the motherland. When I go to India, I just reset. Everything resets. I'm back home with my people. It just feels, it's very devout. I I, I love it. I, I love the culture and I, I wanted to learn something. So I said, I'm going to learn yoga. So I went through Ashtanga yoga teacher training and I, um, I loved it. It was, it was, I had not given myself that much time I think in a while, and I know I'd spent my time in recovery, but I, I really wanted to learn something. I wanted to learn and grow, and I wanted to be in a new environment. So my parents supported that decision. They were like, go to India for a month. So I went to India, and I went to a yoga teacher training. I met with this Ayurvedic doctor who, um, Ayurveda is one of the oldest you know, sciences, and it's based on really healing from the root and not just putting a sexy Band-Aid, giving you medication. Like, it's all, you know, really healing yourself from the inside out and getting to the root of your problem. I went to an Ayurvedic doctor and I said to him, I want to get off medication. And he said to me, let me ask you a question. When were you diagnosed? I said, when I was 20 years old. And he said, would you say that you're different now than how you were when you were 20? And I said, absolutely. He said, 
so why are you still on medication? And I said, because I need it. He goes, do you really need it though? And I said, well, I'm afraid that if I don't take medication that I'm going to go crazy because I, I was told pretty much my whole life that I was crazy. I was told mm-hmm. my, from probably the age of 12 or 13, my, my parents used to call me crazy all the time and wow. say that I was, uh, there was something wrong with me. It's always what's wrong with you. Yeah. So like, what's wrong with you? So I just always thought my mind mm. was broken. I feel, I feel your pain for me right now, Mark. I appreciate it. I, I, I feel the empathy. I do. And he just made me say, he goes, you know, you can change what you tell yourself about yourself. And I think, Mark, if mm. it was maybe, if it was a few months earlier that I had heard that, or maybe a year before, I would have been like, yeah, but you don't get my life. You don't know. But I was, I was ready in that moment. I was the right words at the right time. It was just, he said to me, he asked me two things. He said, how do you feel today? In that moment, when I was sitting in the chair, I go, I feel great. He goes, what did you do today? I said, I went for a walk. I did my yoga practice. I ate really well. I was in the sun. I drank a lot of water. He goes, okay, great. What, how did you feel yesterday? I go, I didn't feel too good. I was kind of depressed. And he goes, why? I go, you know, it was raining. I felt a little lazy. I didn't feel like doing my yoga. I ate a little, I drank a little bit more coffee and ate a little bit too much, you know, too many carbs. Like I just, I know. And he goes, okay, so this shows if you do more of what makes you feel good, you will feel good. He goes, and a lot of things you can't control like the weather, right? I can't control. I don't like humidity. I don't like the rain, but I still have control over what I do for myself as far as loving myself, right? Like I can't control the weather, but I can control whether I move my body. I can control what I put in my body, how much water I drink, what I'm eating, who I'm talking to. And so it just, I I was ready, Mark. I was ready. I said, okay. So I said, what do I need to do? He gave me a few herbal medications, whatever. I I really didn't even take them to be honest. Went back to my room. I said, I I don't want any of this. I said, I just make up my mind. I'm making up my mind. And I remember going back to my room, flushing the Lamictal and the lithium down the toilet. And I remember when I, it was like very ceremonious for me. I like flushed it. I immediately felt some anxiety and I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am Mm -hmm. I going to do if I feel? And I had that initial moment. And then I remember the voice immediately after that, which I believe is my higher self said, you're going to be okay regardless of what you experience. Mm-hmm. You, you got it. You, you know yourself. You know, like you've, you've, you were born for this. You're good. You could take care of yourself. You're okay. And I think that's just really what I had to learn to tell myself because from a very young age, I never felt like anything was okay. I just was waiting for chaos to strike. And so I always lived in a state of, well, I need to have this just in case. I need to be in this relationship just in case everything is always living in with a just in case, just in case what though, right? What am I so afraid of? So, you know, here I am medication free. That's nuts. That's incredible. You know, I, yeah, when you told that story, I, I think it's just such a good reminder for people that often the, So the way beliefs get formed is you might hear something from someone about you and then you think about that thing about yourself and thoughts that get repeated become beliefs. And so someone else's thought about us becomes our thought about us, especially when we're young, because we can't adult differentiate their opinion of us from our opinion of us. And that is it shows you how like words spoken to us can follow us till we do the work of separating and cultivating inner worth so that we know that a belief doesn't match a truth within. And gosh, I could, I could just feel that of, of like, here's this young person who's um, has to cultivate this belief just because someone doesn't know how to hold the container of who they are. So they try to make you smaller to fit into a container that they have both existed in, which is no offense to them because they were cultivated and, and mm-hmm. um, patterned and taught to be the way they are. But at some point, the pattern stops. At some point, the inheritance stops. And I acknowledge you for the immense amount of work that it, and commitment and courage it takes to expand the container from a cultural perspective and from a physiological perspective, from all the perspectives that says like, they're not meant to hold your container. You are. And the world is so much of a better place because you are fully in your life, fully in your voice. I mean, you can tell in your passion, you know, it's like, I'm sweating. 
It's like a good sweat, though. You thought I'm all my all yeah, the heat. I got yeah. it too. It's just <laughs> alchemy. It's alchemy. Shit. I, I will say this. Um, the more I learned, and I want everyone to hear this who's been trying to force their parents or force their partners to go to therapy and change everybody else. I swear to God, when I talk to my parents, I don't even see them as mother and father. I just see them as two people because I no longer try to get water from a rock anymore. I know that there are certain things that I will never get from my mother and not because she doesn't love me, but she, her, her capacity is limited based on, because she has not done this type of work on herself. She can give me what she can give me based on what was given to her. That's it. My father, love him. I'm a daddy's girl. As you know, I like, you know, played the damsel, but I, our relationship has changed too. It's like, I see him. I think I always felt like I had to save my father growing up. So I always picked men that I felt like I needed to save. And when I see my dad now, I'm just like, he's just a regular dude, man. He's chilling. Like, he's good. Like, he never needed to be saved. I assigned myself that role. I, assi- mm. I, I, I thought that role was mine. I, I assigned that role to myself. And I also have the power to reassign that role, right? I, or I, don't, I can give up that role. I don't need to do that. I just feel like instead of trying to change everybody else, when I started to really just give myself the love, the attention, and the energy that I wanted for everyone else, when I stopped editing and filtering everything that I was saying, when I stopped settling and saying, oh, this is good enough, and I, and I really started to say, like, well, what do I want? What makes me feel good, which Indian women do not do. Women, and I feel like, I don't, I don't like to say generally speaking, but most of the no, time, I agree with that from a generalization. Like, I think that's very true. We're not trained to ask ourselves what I want. And it's like, you can't be, I know we all have this goal of being selfless. I mean, I don't anymore, but it's like, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm done with that right now. Yeah, but that's like, a badge. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a, a that's a lonely badge yeah, to, yes. to hold. If you, if you really want to be of service, because I believe everyone listening, you know, we all have this desire to be of service. We want, we want to do good for others, but you can't really do that to the full capacity. If you don't, if you're not selfish, if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the message becomes a message of righteousness because yeah. it's always a secret contract. Yeah. Oh, I'll help you. I'll save you, but don't forget what you owe me. <laughs> like I did it, this yeah. for you. And yeah. you're like, I didn't ask you to. Oh yeah. But you wanted really at the end of the day, you really wanted me to, but no, I love what you said that the moment you surrender to who your parents are and stop trying to get things you maybe one day could get from them, but you don't expect to get from them. There's a freedom that there's a, a, a release of a prison of wishing they were different, wishing your childhood was different. Um, the moment we surrender to that, that there is no alternate world where they were perfect or life was perfect. And that's true for everybody. Even the people who we project as having had the most perfect childhoods, I promise you they got their shit. No, I guarantee you because they're human. And and it's it's interesting when we stop doing that and we just surrender to what we have been handed then we start to handle it. And that is a moment of true transformation. What a fucking life. Hey, she, look at you. We yeah, went all yeah. over the place. I'm like, God, I, I, I should really be a little bit more linear in my speaking, but you know, there's so much. Nah, of what, what I want you guys. Perfect. To be, I appreciate that. I, I really want, you know, I, I don't go too deep into detail. And I know we went to a little bit, but I, what I really want your listeners to hear you guys is that it's not about, the drugs. It's not about the alcohol. It's not about the relationships. It really is who, who did I have to be? And who was I that allowed that in my life and tolerated that in my life? That's what this is about. The alcohol, the drugs, the, the, you know, the uh, narcissistic ex, all of it is just a, a symptom. It's a byproduct of my lack of relationship with myself. It just showed up in that way for me. Right. So That's let, don't responsibility. Get, yeah. Don't get caught up in the details. It really is. It really is. I remember the, the the best thing my therapist said to me when I was sitting there like, but why did he do this? And why did he do this? And she was like, Vasavi, no one did anything to you. You allowed it. You allowed oh, it. That's and a good straight truth that ga- is hard game, to hold. Game changer. Game changer made me feel like, okay, I can, ha- I can work with this because if I allowed it, that means I have the power. Yeah. I have the control now. So what can I do? And then the focus becomes back about you. And that is the only thing you have control over. 
Yeah, you see that in that um, stepping out of the victim mindset is actually where all the power is. We are we we feel powerless giving it away because then we're it's not our fault. Now it's our fault. And that is hard to hold because, of course, there are some things that are not our fault, but they're all our responsibility. And that's the key. Thank you for sharing your story. I love you. I'm so grateful that our lives have continued to weave into each other and um, I'm, I mean, in a, in a, in a friend way, just so proud of you for what you've accomplished and who you continue to become. Um, and I say that standing beside you, not from a place of success, more like she, we're all in this together. We're all in the trenches and, um, thank you for being courageous and sharing your story. And maybe this might be the first episode your parents listen to, who knows? My dad like, listens to every single one of my episodes. Be like, she said I was a bad bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My mom will love it. Well, I, and I just came up with a new name for a 16 ball. So that's perfect. I, oh, I, you actually said nutsacker. You said yeah, like Yeah, whatever. It's semantics. Potato, potato. <laughs> <laughs> well- as uh, words of affirmation being my love language, I appreciate you telling me that you're proud of me. It melts my heart when I hear that. So uh, You've done such tremendous work. And wow. and to, to get into alignment with self is freedom, you know, yep. too. And it's freeing. You, we don't need drugs when that happens. It's like life's too delicious to numb. Yeah, it just feels good just to show up and be like, this is, this is who I am. You know, I want that for everybody listening. So shit on that note, where can people find you? Uh, thank you for asking. They can find me on Instagram at Higher Vasavi. Play on words here. H uh, I G H E R, Higher Vasavi. And my website is vasavikumar.com. I do so, love to talk to every single person. So you can always just book a call with me right on my website. V A S A V I for those listening. Mm-hmm. Kumar, K U M A R. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, that's, that was the edge of my uh, accent. Stop. I, yeah, I feel like you have a, f- a little bit more in you that you could. I mean, I try to, I know like four words in Spanish and I know French, so I can adapt sometimes to language, but really it ends at hello <laughs> in a lot of them. <laughs> so, but thank yeah. you for being here today and I appreciate you and everyone make sure you go check Vasipi out. 